2020, the year that just keeps giving. And one of the things that keeps giving is really great internet posts like this one. I giggled all week at that. I'm sure it's given you a lot, but 2020 has given our church a chance to go back to basics, to return to first principles. So we're studying a bit of the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles, which is about the very first church. And we've been observing this simple truth. Prayer isn't the only thing that they did, but it is the first thing that they did. First things first. Now, another thing you can observe in the book of Acts is a certain pattern of circumstances, and it goes like this. That very first church finds itself in a mess. God rescues them with a miracle and then deploys them on a mission. Mess, miracle, mission. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. And right in the heart of that pattern is prayer. It's not the only thing that we do, but it's got to be the first thing that we do. So this is a talk about prayer and some of the common questions around prayer based in Acts chapters 3 and 4. And I want to start with a confession. I've never liked the book of Acts. I find it scary and intimidating. And this week and next week, we'll be dealing with some of the toughest bits of the book of Acts. Now, next week's passage is tough because it contains the fourth weirdest passage in all of the Bible. By my own personal rankings, there are only three weirder passages in all the Bible than Acts chapter five. Now, this week's passage is tough, not because it's strange, but because it is so deeply challenging to us. A brief recap, and then let's jump in. In Acts chapter one, Jesus has been resurrected and then ascends into heaven to rule at God's right hand. In chapter two, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven to guide and empower the first church. And then Acts chapter three. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate, the gate that is called Beautiful, where he was put there every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, which was called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, a couple key words stand out here. It's important that this happens at the temple gate called Beautiful. There's lots of gates going into the temple, and this one was called Beautiful. That was the name of the gate. And we'll talk about beauty in a little bit. Another key word is temple. And I want to talk for a little bit about what the Bible has to say about the temple. It's hard to imagine for us today because we don't have anything like the temple, but the temple in the ancient world was a centerpiece of spirituality for the Israelites. It dominated their thinking and imagination. And so King David, who was the greatest king of the Israelites, once wrote a poem that contained this line, better is one day in your temple courts than thousands elsewhere. And in the ancient world to the Israelites, the temple was thought to function in a very specific way. The temple was where God was guaranteed to be available for healing and restoration. And that's why it was better to be there than anywhere else. 
The temple was where God was reliably present. Have you ever had that sense that when you're praying, it just doesn't feel like God is listening or maybe it feels like you're not even listening to your own prayer? And that's what is so great about the temple. God had promised to be there. It was a venue where you could reliably experience God. So it is significant when Jesus comes along and onto the scene that he says he will destroy the temple. They testify against him in the trial against Jesus. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This was something that Jesus was evidently famous for saying. And the part about rebuilding it in three days was Jesus's way of saying that he was now the place where God was guaranteed to be present. Jesus was now the place where you could experience God. And then what the Bible has to say about the temple gets really crazy. Later, the Bible tells us that you and I are temples. The apostle Paul wrote, do you not know that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? There's this phrase that keeps repeating in the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus in the book of Acts is filled with the Holy Spirit. This phrase is so common that scholars say the book of Acts of the Apostles should really be called the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. God's spirit that was guaranteed to be in the temple took on flesh in Jesus Christ and has now come to rest upon anyone that is a follower of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you and I are temples of God's Holy Spirit. And here is the scary and deeply challenging part. You and I are venues where people can experience God. A Christian should be a sort of guarantee to the world. You can experience God right here through me. And that's challenging indeed. But Peter and John are exactly that. Now there's a subtle insult here that this man unable to walk since birth has been sitting every day outside of the old ineffective temple and nothing happened. But when the true temple the followers of Jesus carrying the Holy Spirit within them arrive on the scene, this man is immediately healed. Now let's talk a little bit about healing. Certainly we believe that God heals. The plain message of passages like these is that God can and does heal people in miraculous ways. Of course, the God who created everything and sustains its existence has the power to heal human bodies. We can and we should pray for healing. But there are corollary truths that must also be named. And one of those is that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we want him to. If he did, that would make him subordinate to us. He's generous and good and he loves us and he's powerful enough to answer all these prayers, but he doesn't have to do what we ask. That would put us in charge. Another truth that must be named alongside the reality that God can and does heal is this. There are other kinds of miracles besides physical healing. See, science can heal the human body, so maybe healing isn't even the most miraculous of miracles. Science is good, and I think God is thrilled at the scientific advances that help the earth to thrive. Science can heal a lot, but it can't make you forgive. Science can heal a lot, but it can't restore marriage. Science can heal a lot, but it can't make you generous or humble. 
And so sometimes we pray a prayer and God answers it in an unexpected way to build forgiveness or restoration or humility into us. And God answering a prayer with a different kind of miracle is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that sounds pretty miraculous to me. In fact, I got to witness a miracle like this once in my life. When I was in high school, there was a really wonderful person from my church, and she was something of a mentor to me. She was one of my friend's mom, and she would help me with school. And one time she made a costume for me for a thing I had to do for school. And most days after school, I would go over to this friend's house, and her mom would talk with me about what it really meant to follow Jesus. I would bring her questions about the Bible or we'd share quotes from things we were reading. This family and especially this mom were so generous to me and just a really big part of my faith story. And so my little group of friends in high school that would go over to their house after school, everyone I knew from church, we were crushed when we learned she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Of course, we all prayed for her to be healed, long, intense prayer meetings, but God had a different plan. And one day, my junior year of high school, I was talking with her and she said, of course, I would love it if God healed me. I love my family and my life and I would love more time with it. And of course, I've asked God to heal me. But she said, right now though, God is really working in my heart. And she said, there are things about me that God is changing and without the cancer, I would never let God work on that part of me. There are hurts in me that God is healing, and without all this, I'd never let God have access to those parts of me. And I'll never forget this. She said, he's changing me in ways I will be grateful for, even if he doesn't heal my body. She was a place you were guaranteed to experience God, and God didn't heal her body. And eventually she passed away, but we all saw a miracle anyway. She was a temple. Now, other times the story turns out differently. Check this out. I had gone to my doctor for my annual exam. And when she did the breast exam, I will always remember she looked into my eyes and said, I feel something. Do you feel something? And I knew from her reaction that it wasn't good. I really thought that I was just going to have the experience of knowing what that fear and worry is like when you're waiting to get a diagnosis, but then everything turns out all right and you're fine and you're good. And that was not the case. I found out that I had stage two breast cancer ductal invasive carcinoma, to be specific. My initial thoughts were fear and worry and anxiety. I'm a mom of four kids. What's going to happen to my kids and how, how are they going to handle going through this? In that time while I was waiting for the results from my biopsy, um, I happened to go to a spiritual retreat which of course was God's perfect timing that it happened right then. 
And I remember praying with a friend who was there. And as we prayed, I had this image of myself wrapped in a blanket of fear and anxiety and worry. And I had this picture of God pouring down His grace and His presence and His peace. Just pouring it down. This was the only access He had to me because I was wrapped in my own fears and worries. And God came to me and was giving me His peace and presence and promising me that He would be faithful and that He would be with me. I don't know that I've ever had an experience in my life where I felt the presence of Jesus so deeply as I did during my year of cancer. When I was first diagnosed, somebody had sent me the prayer of, from St. Patrick's breastplate, which if there was ever a more appropriate prayer for a breast cancer patient, it's the prayer from St. Patrick's breastplate. Um, it has a lot of words to it, but the ones that I would hold on to and remember Anytime I went into um, an operating room or was laying on a table or getting a scan, I would say to myself, Christ beside me, Christ beneath me, Christ before me, Christ all around me. And that kind of became my little mantra to remind me that I was not alone. And that even though I have a wonderful family and community and friends who couldn't be there with me, Jesus was there with me. It truly was the peace that passes understanding because it didn't make sense um, logically with what was going on in my life that I would feel at peace and that I would be okay with where I was at. So truly that peace has allowed me to live with a new freedom uh, that all we have is today and God is with us in this day. God reminded me that He is the God who gives peace and hope and that those things are not dependent on our circumstances and our current situation but they're dependent on a good and strong and loving God who knows us and sees us. Maybe you've had God answer a prayer in a powerful way. This week, you should talk with your life group about a time God answered your prayers, maybe in a miraculous way or maybe in an unexpected way. And maybe it's through a Zoom call or a text message thread, but you should share those stories with your life group this week. Well, God answered Peter and John's prayer to heal this man, but the challenging passage doesn't end there. Let's return to our passage. While the man who'd been healed held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. When Peter saw this, he said, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? You stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of people who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? 
And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and if we are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands here before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. Famous and beautiful words from Peter, but there again is this repeated phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter speaks the truth because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that invites the question, who or what is this Holy Spirit? Now, the first time we hear of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is the second overall verse in the whole Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the water. So the Holy Spirit is present at creation. And over the next two chapters in the book of Genesis, the universe is created and it culminates in the creation of humans who are placed in a perfect and thriving garden. And then this verse, and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And then after six days of creating, on that very first Sabbath, God rests. Not out of fatigue, but out of joyful celebration in creation's goodness. God saw that his creation was good. But what does it mean that creation was good? Old Testament expert Walter Brueggemann comments this. The good here used for the creation narrative does not refer primarily to a moral quality, but to an aesthetic quality. It might be better translated lovely or pleasing or beautiful. The shift from the sixth day to the seventh Sabbath day is then not just that time had run its course, but that God knows satisfaction and delight in what he has wrought. He rests not because the week ends, but because there is a satisfying finished quality to his creation. And now all of this tells us something important about the Holy Spirit, some important things that have implications for our passage. It tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring God's beauty into the world. It tells us that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is goodness. It tells us that the Holy Spirit is world creating. It tells us that the universe was created by this Holy Spirit. It is a cosmic power. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make things good and the power of this Holy Spirit is cosmic. It created the universe. And here we start to get a glimpse of the truly challenging stuff in the book of Acts. Followers of Jesus are filled with this same Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, this cosmic power to bring goodness into the world in Jesus's name lives in you. Ordinary, overwhelmed, anxious, exhausted, little old you. And that is why prayer is the first thing that we do. Prayer is how we tap into this cosmic power. And the story goes on. When the authorities saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Yes, that's what it says. Now, 
If you are around or above 40 years old and you're feeling insulted, then you have correctly understood this passage. In those days, 40 was old, old, old. And if you had the power to heal someone, a wiser investment of that power would be to heal someone much younger with many years ahead of them rather than some ancient 40-year-old. Now, the meaning of the text is supposed to be, look how generous and lacking in self-interest the disciples were, helping someone who was too old to ever help them back. What great people. And that's true, we're to bring goodness into the world without a thought of how we might be repaid for that. But at 38 years old, I find this insulting. On their release, Peter and John went back to their people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, They raised their voices together and prayed to God. Prayer isn't the only thing we do, but it's gotta be the first thing that we do. The early church finds itself in a mess and what do they do? They pray. So a bit about prayer. We're in 90 days of prayer right now and I have just found it so life-giving to lean into what God is doing at Menlo Church. And I really think you should sign up. There's like 70 more days left. But sometimes it is easy during something like 90 days of prayer for prayer to become something of a chore. Now, one thing that helps me when I'm stuck in prayer is to remember that these same disciples, Peter and John, aren't very good at praying in the beginning. In Luke chapter 11, when they first start hanging out with Jesus, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And maybe that's a great way for you to start your prayers each day. Ask Jesus to teach you to pray. I've been asking Jesus to teach me to pray, and I've been asking Jesus to teach Menlo Church to pray. But I also think of other things where learning them feels like a chore in such a way that we miss the grandeur of what we're really learning. Like maybe riding a bike. At first, riding a bike is about when and how hard to brake and how to keep pedaling to keep your balance and to look both ways in the street. But in the end, it's really not about those things at all. It's about all the places you can go on that bike or teaching my daughter Margot during the asynchronous parts of online kindergarten. She's learning the alphabet and sight words and sounding things out. And every day I wanna tell her, it is not about those things at all. It is about the awesome mind expanding books you're gonna get to read someday. And prayer is the same way. Dallas Willard put it like this. It would of course be a low voltage spiritual life in which prayer was chiefly undertaken as a discipline rather than a way of co-laboring with God to accomplish good things and advance his kingdom purposes. Prayer is co-laboring. It is co-creating good things with God. And praying this way gets Peter and John into a mess with the local religious authorities. And the first thing that this first church does in a mess is to pray. And so they pray. Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything within them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this very city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus." 
And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now I know here in the Silicon Valley, there might be a stigma around being a Christian. And I also know that the list of bad qualities associated with this stigma is really long. And that's why Acts is scary. You and I, right here in the Silicon Valley, with our jobs and reputations on the line, are supposed to pray for boldness in letting people know that Jesus can create goodness in their lives again, that there really truly is good news. So here at the end, I want you to pray. Maybe start by praying, Jesus, teach me to pray. I want you to join in the 90 days of prayer and fasting. I want you to set aside time each day to talk with Jesus. And as you do, I want you to ask Jesus to fill you with his Holy Spirit. I want you to tap into that cosmic power to create goodness. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is a truth here that you cannot miss. You are a temple aimed at goodness and beauty, filled with the power to do miraculous things, people should expect to experience God when they meet you. We must embrace the reality that we carry within us the power to make the world good again. Filled with the Holy Spirit, a follower of Jesus is a spiritual force to be reckoned with. Yes, people plot against this Jesus but they plot in vain. His plan to heal the world is underway. He will make the world good again. He will wipe away every tear. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to humankind, which we might be saved. That Jesus is on the march. He is on the move and it is shocking. It is challenging that part of his plan is to use ordinary people like you and me in messy situations like 2020. So we have to pray. It can't be the only thing we do, but it's gotta be the first thing we do. To unleash this Holy Spirit power of garden goodness into your world upon everything you touch and everyone you know, every school or office or Zoom meeting, every friendship, marriage, and family. Pray boldly for goodness. Tell people things can be fixed and healed and redeemed. They will be walking and jumping and praising God because they met you, a carrier of the power to make the world good again, a follower of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. 90 days of prayer and fasting is the least that we could do. Jesus, we give our lives to you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Teach Menlo Church to pray. Silver and gold have we not, but we give what we do have. Be made good in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Amen.